You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to just be looking at three verses today, verses 31 to 33. Matthew 13, 31 to 33. And just to, you know, for some context, for those of you who are newer or coming in, um, Jesus is speaking to the people in parables, and uh, he's teaching to the people from a boat in the water, people on the shore, thousands of them likely, and Jesus chooses to speak to them in a parabolic way, and I'll explain what parable means in just a minute, just by way of reminder, but let's read the text. Matthew 13, 31, Jesus, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. So the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So remember what a parable is. A parable is a short story that's thrown alongside a spiritual truth and it's used for comparison. It's a metaphor. And Jesus, in an agricultural culture, looks around him and has thousands of metaphors to use to describe spiritual truths. But the spiritual meaning is simple. It is easily understood only if the parabolic teacher explains what it means. Jesus doesn't explain the meaning of his parables to all of his audience. He only explains the meaning to his disciples. In fact, Even with this parable, we don't see Jesus explain the meaning of this parable, but we can still draw spiritual significance from it. But Jesus teaches parabolically to help people understand and also to keep people from understanding. He wields it like a two-edged sword, one to reveal the truth, on the other hand, to hide the truth. And the theme of these parables, if you take them as a lot, as a group, is that they're all about the kingdom. That is clear. Jesus says the kingdom is light. The kingdom is light. The kingdom is light. Specifically, Jesus is talking about the age in God's kingdom program between his ascension and his return. Some would call this, scholars would call it the church age. And that's the age in which we live. That is, we live after Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father and we live before his physical return. And that's the age that these parables describe. Maybe think about it this way. Maybe just extrapolating on that a little bit would help you understand. The Jews at this time, they were expecting a literal and political kingdom. They wanted the Messiah to come down and basically overthrow Roman oppression. They thought their biggest problem were their Roman oppressors. But Jesus came not to be served in his first coming. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus came to deal with 
the greater oppression in Israel's hearts and lives. And that is the oppression that all of us deal with in our life. It is the oppression of sin. It is our own sinful curse that must be dealt with and atoned for before Christ would come back and establish his government political reign. And so Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. He would, in a sense, establish a spiritual kingdom, that is, establish followers, a people that would be for his own possession until the literal kingdom is manifest, until Christ comes back and establishes the messianic kingdom. So in this age, or this is the age of the kingdom that Jesus describes in his parables, the spiritual conditions and influence of the kingdom now in our life, lifetime and in the lifetime of his apostles that he would send out. And so we've covered a couple of parables. Let's just review the parable of the sower. It describes how the gospel of the kingdom will be both rejected and received in this age. There are four soils represent four heart responses to the gospel seed. There's three bad responses and only one that is good and produces lasting fruit. Then you have the parable of the weeds. The parable of the weeds describes an age where both unbelievers and believers live together in the world. That's the age we live in today. We, we look around us and there's unbelievers out there. In fact, it's a little bit concerning because they have a lot of those society strongholds, like unbelievers run the government, unbelievers run the banks, unbelievers uh, run healthcare largely. And so we live in a world surrounded by unbelievers, but God doesn't call us to get them out of here. That's not our mission. We're not to take the mission of the crusades and Christianize the world, and if you're not Christian, well, then you get the boot. No, our mission is to be faithful here and to allow the unbelievers to live around, because guess what? God is going to deal with them at the end of this age. God will purge unbelievers, those who are truly his, from unbelievers, save his own, and judge unbelievers. Well, based on these parables, you might be concerned about God's kingdom program. Or at least you might ask the question, will God's kingdom be successful? Because I don't see a lot of success around me. Again, surrounded by unbelievers in this age, even the parable of the soils, there are three bad heart responses and there's only one that's good. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that the way is wide and the gate's wide that leads to destruction And it's only a narrow gate, and few find it, that lead to everlasting life. Is God's kingdom program, his plan, going to be successful? Because it certainly doesn't feel that way. I mean, even maybe the disciples, the, the 12 of them are looking around going, is this it? Like, this is our start? We are going to impact the world for Christ? That seems like a ridiculous goal, an exaggerated vision. Will the kingdom be successful? And so that is where the the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven come in. In short, these two parables describe the success of God's kingdom. It will be successful, even with a small start. It will 
massively influence the world even with small beginnings. And so Jesus describes the success of his mission, the success of the kingdom in these parables. And it really should encourage us. It should motivate us to be on mission. If the mission is successful, then we're not selling a bad product. One of the keys of sales, if you're in sales, you know this. One of the keys of sales is to believe in your product, right? If you have no faith in your product, you're going to have a really hard time selling it to people and, and giving them a faith in your product if you don't believe it yourself. Well, that is a very small comparison to the gospel mission that we have. If you don't really believe the gospel works, that Christ's mission will be successful, that he'll build his church and the gates of hell won't uh, overthrow it or won't stop it and that his kingdom will eventually be all around the world, then you're going to have a hard time preaching the gospel to your neighbor if you don't believe it works. You don't believe there's power in the gospel to save sinners. You're going to be demotivated. You're going to be deflated. You're going to be dim light in a dark world. You're going to be bland salt in a tasteless society. Even with society's collapse, you look around, you say, oh man, the world's strongholds are falling apart. Society is deteriorating fast. Even in the midst of this, Christian, listen, we have a sure hope. Our attitude, our behavior does not change. Because our hope doesn't change. God told us the mission will be successful. I will make and multiply disciples around the world. The gospel will be proclaimed across the world until the end comes. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Do you really believe that? Do you live like you believe that? The only way that you could prove that you really believe that is to live on mission. To live on mission. If you believe with conviction that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that God will save all his elect in this world, he's going to bring his kingdom on earth and it will be dominant, then you'll have more courage in God's gospel plan and more confidence in your evangelism. Listen, Christian, you don't have a loser gospel. We shouldn't have a loser mentality when it comes to evangelism and God's mission to grow his church. Sure, we might lose the world, but Christ and his kingdom wins. Okay? And I want to show you how these parables talk about that. First, in your outline, the first parable, from a small start to a big finish. That's the parable of the mustard seed. From a small start to a big finish. Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Now he says it's the smallest of all seeds. Within context, we understand him to be talking about garden plants. Okay, He's not talking about the smallest seed in all the world. Uh, for that, you'd probably find an orchid flower that would have a smaller seed. But Jesus is talking about the smallest seeds of all plants in agriculture. The mustard seed. Is parabolic. It's notorious. It's proverbial for its smallness. It was about one millimeter in diameter. It's a very small seed. And Jesus uses this same metaphor to describe smallness 
uh, when he was talking about little faith in Matthew 17. He says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. The Jewish teachers would understand Jesus is talking about a small thing or a small beginning. And so Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven, this great and glorious plan of God, has small beginnings, just like a mustard seed. Now, if you've read the Bible, you know that our God is keen on small things. He uses small things. In fact, when he talks about the people of Israel and choosing them in Deuteronomy 7, 7, he says, it's not because you were more in number than the other nations that I set my love upon you and chose you. He said, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. You were the smallest. Again, talking about Israel, he says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, and I have made you many. Keen on small things. Remember the story of David and Goliath? Goliath the Philistine looks down on David. When Goliath saw and looked at David, 1 Samuel 17, he disdained him, for he was just a little boy. Ruddy and handsome in appearance. Well, he had that, he, he had that going for him. But the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? That you came to me with sticks? Sticks and stones, Goliath. You forgot the stones. And that would eventually be his downfall. Why? Why would God be keen on small things? Can you think of why? Because then he gets the glory for making them big. Can't boast in men. Can't boast in the skill and the talent and the size of of mankind, God is keen on small things because he gets the glory for making them big. 1 Corinthians 1.27 talks about that. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God is keen on small things because he definitively gets the glory for making them big. Even elsewhere in the Old Testament, when the exiles of Israel returned under, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, they start to rebuild the temple. And the young people rejoice in seeing the foundation laid of the temple. But you know what the old people did? They wept. They cried. Why? Because they remembered the former glory of Solomon's temple. It was big. It was glorious. And they're looking at the start of this new one going, this is small. Haggai and Zechariah, they speak to Israel during this time. They remind them of God's covenant promises. Haggai says the latter glory of the temple is going to be greater than the former glory. Do not despise small things. Zechariah 4.10 says the ones who despised the day of small things will rejoice on that day. They're going to be blown away by what God's going to do. Small temple now, wait till you see the end of it. And Zechariah says clearly, it's not by might or by human power, it's by the Spirit of God that this will be established. So if we look back at the parable, we're not going to despise the small start because we know 
that with God's and by God's power, it's going to have a big finish, especially when we're talking about the kingdom. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So even though a mustard seed, one millimeter in diameter, it starts there, the finish of the mustard plant, it's a, it's, it becomes a very large shrub in Palestine, so much that it looks like a tree. It could be up to 15 feet tall. Yeah, we live in Southern California. That's a tree, right? So the kingdom, similarly, becomes a large, large, larger than all garden plants, like a tree. Now, this metaphor would be familiar. If you, if you know your Old Testament, if you're a Jewish scholar in the audience, you're thinking about trees and, and birds coming to nest into them. And let me tell you, you're thinking about kingdoms. You're thinking about the dominance of kingdoms. Because you might recall back to the book of Ezekiel, the prophet, when he describes the kingdom of Assyria. He describes the kingdom of Assyria as a large tree that birds nest in. And the birds that nest in the tree represent all the nations that lived in Assyria's shadow. They dominated the world. Read up on the Assyrian Empire. But the prophet Ezekiel talks about the problem in Assyria. The problem is that they are proud. That they think they have made something of themselves. So God comes and in Ezekiel 31, he cuts down the tree. So God allows the empire to rise up to be a tree that dominates the world, and then he comes and he cuts down the Assyrian empire. Similar metaphor used to describe an empire, a kingdom. Again, elsewhere in Scripture, in the book of Daniel, they would think about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? He had a dream that he was like a tree that grew, and all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the heavens flocked into his tree. But what happened to Nebuchadnezzar's empire? Cut down. Fell down. Even though for a time, the Babylonian empire was dominant in the world and all the nations would come under the shadow of its wings, it was cut down. It fell to the Medo-Persians. So in the Old Testament, this tree and birds nesting metaphor, it was always used about kingdoms and the dominance of kingdoms. But then... There's another passage that maybe the Jewish scholar would remember. A kingdom that would not be destroyed. A tree that never fell. Let me read to you another portion of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 17. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and I'll set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree. And I make high the small tree. I dry up the green tree, make dry 
make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do this. What kingdom do you think God was talking about there? The same kingdom that he describes in Matthew 13. What starts small will have a climactic, massive, dominating influence in the world. Don't fret. God's kingdom plan is successful. It will come to pass. He's working all empires in history toward this climactic finish. When he establishes his kingdom and his king reigns and was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples and nations, just like those birds, would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, a tree that's not cut down. It will not pass away. It will not be destroyed. Daniel 7.14. Jesus, in just a, a small word picture, is describing the success of his kingdom. It will be successful. Despite small beginnings, it will have a massive, big, dominating finish. You know, we know, we, we shouldn't despise small things. Or small beginnings. That's how we got started. That's how the people of Israel got started. That's how the church started. You would say small beginnings. A service in Jerusalem. Sure, maybe 3,000 souls are saved. But then from there, what happened? The gospel spread out. People are saved into God's kingdom. And saved out of the kingdom of darkness. And so we don't want to underestimate God's power. We don't want to compare and despair at the size difference between the church and the world. We know his kingdom will be successful. Though the nations rage, he will set his king on Zion, the holy hill, and he'll make all the nations his heritage. Do you feel like we're losing today? Do you talk like we're losing like Christianity has lost its influence. You look at the decline of society, you might act like we're losing. Christian, we're not. Sure, the world is deteriorating, society is getting worse, but the church is not. God's mission will prevail. God's church will be established. The gates of hell cannot stop it. And the kingdom of God is coming. And these world orders, these tiny Babylons, these little Assyrian empires, whatever you want to call them, they will be cut down and destroyed by our king. And he'll establish his righteous, perfect, dominating kingdom. And so we trust him to do that, don't we? And we don't lose hope. We don't become deflated, discouraged, and live like we're losing. We're effective in our mission. We seek first his kingdom. We win souls for the king. We proclaim the gospel. We're not ashamed. We don't hide our light under a basket. We don't give up. We don't lose hope. God's kingdom wins. Point number two, the second parable. From little influence to mission complete. From little influence to mission complete. Complete. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Leaven. You might be more familiar with yeast. Yeast. It's a similar rising agent. It's, it's interesting how Jesus pairs these parables together. Because the first is from the agricultural sphere and the second is from the domestic sphere. Generally, 
And it's something like stereotyping or being sexist, okay? Generally in this time, the men worked out in the fields, agriculture, and the women worked in the home, domestic. So it's interesting that God uses an illustration almost like for the men to understand well and an illustration for the women to understand well. All that to say, Jesus is an excellent teacher, very relatable, can speak to the agricultural sphere and also to the domestic sphere with great power and illustration. And so leaven is like yeast. It's a rising agent in bread. It doesn't take much to influence a whole batch of flour. The yeast eventually works its way through the whole batch. Those of you who are bakers understand this. Three measures of flour, Jesus uses that measurement. Three measures of flour. You need to know that is a lot of flour. That's not three cups of flour. Three measures would be enough to feed bread to 100 people. That's a lot. That's a lot of flour. And just, we see a small influence of yeast eventually permeate the whole dough. And that's what leaven does. That's what yeast does. Once it enters, it cannot be stopped until the whole dough is permeated. Scripture says elsewhere, a little leaven leavens the whole what? Batch or the whole dough, the whole lump. So this is a parable about influence and effect. Again, small influence affects the whole batch, eventually becomes dominant. And within this context, it's used positively. Some scholars would say, well, leaven is only used negatively in the scripture. Again, we don't use other parables to interpret parables. We, we see the parable and we understand the parable within its context. It's talking about a very positive thing, the kingdom of God. That's not a negative thing. And so we're talking about the influence and growth of God's kingdom. It's a parable of influence and effect. So how do we understand this related to the kingdom of heaven? In the first parable, the growth is obvious, it's outward. Yet a very small seed that ended with a massive plant like a tree. The second parable is inward. Did you notice that? The effect happens inward, in the batch. Not necessarily obvious at the outset that it is filled with yeast, but the yeast permeates within until it's all leavened, is what Jesus says. That's why I would submit that the first parable alludes to the outward and physical success of God's kingdom. And I believe the second parable alludes to the inward spiritual influence and success of God's kingdom. In other words, I believe the parable of the leaven is an illustration on how the gospel will spread in this age and eventually save all of God's elect around the world. His mission will be brought to completion. The leaven will go out and leaven the whole lump. From little influence to mission complete. Think about it. It started with 12 men. 12 men in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Maybe a few other followers, but these 12 men largely were the start of it. 11 of them are here when Jesus is talking about this, not knowing that Judas would eventually betray them, but was replaced by Matthias. But the first gospel was preached at Pentecost after Christ ascended to heaven, and it started in Jerusalem, a little leaven, just a little bit, entered the dough. 
And after that sermon, 3,000 souls are saved. And if you read the book of Acts, it says they added to their number day by day. Added to their number and added to their number. From 3,000 to 5,000 to tens of thousands. And it didn't just start and stop in Jerusalem. Just like yeast, gospel started in Jerusalem, then spread out to all of Judea, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth, to all the Gentiles. We saw it happen just within the first couple hundred years. And that effect still happens today. More and more people saved into God's kingdom. Like leaven, working its way through the lump, the gospel goes out and has the power to save. Listen, Christian, the mission works. The Great Commission works. It saves people. Great Commission doesn't give us political power or influence societally. It is an inner power that spiritually transforms lives and causes people to be born again. It works from the inside. The mission works. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's our mission. Jesus said it another way in Mark 16. Go into the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. You know what's preventing the end from coming? Is that the gospel still hasn't reached all the people God set out for it to reach yet. He said it in Matthew 24. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. So Christ doesn't come back. The end doesn't come until all God's elect are saved. Until the whole lump is leavened. And we can have confidence that it will have its full effect. We know the whole lump is going to be leavened. The church was born, birthed at Pentecost, and it will be built. Christ promised it. Do you remember where? We read it in our scripture reading this morning. He promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. In Matthew 16. Once the gospel goes out, it cannot be stopped. Just like yeast. Jesus promises in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Some not even in this age, but in the ages to come. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count clonus, but he is patient toward you, that is patient toward judgment coming, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I believe the all he's referring to there is the lump, those that God intends to save, the elect. The end's not going to come before they're saved. Just as Jesus said, hey, don't prematurely pick out those weeds because you might accidentally pick out the wheat too. Maybe those who I have planted have not yet grown yet to maturation and I want you to leave those weeds because those wheat are important to me. I don't want you to prematurely pull them out. So, Christ is building a kingdom that is a spiritual uh, kingdom, a people for his own possession, so that they would rule and reign with him when he returns. That's the physical manifestation of the kingdom. Now, theologians will debate about the semantics, how you say that, this and there, referring to eschatology, but I think that's what Jesus is talking about here, saving people in preparation for the end to come when Christ establishes his eternal kingdom. Okay, 
that's what we see. That's how, that's the effect and the influence. Start small, ends big of the kingdom of God. But I want you to think for a minute. I'm fascinated. I'm always kind of bewildered looking at God's plan thinking, how did God decide to accomplish this plan? How is it that the kingdom goes from having little influence to full effect, completion? How is it, what are the means by which God uses to make a very small thing, a thing that started small into a big dominating thing, a kingdom filled with thousands of people, hundreds of thousands, millions at the end of the age? Does God give direct revelation to every elect person that he chose? Does God come down and speak to them, say, you're my child? Does God save them and then pluck them out, take them right to heaven? No, what is the means? Who are the means that God uses to spread his influence throughout the world? That's the question we should be asking. And for that, I want you to hear the words of 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9, you can turn there in your Bible. In fact, maybe you should because I want you to see this for yourself. I want you to see why you were saved, why you were chosen. Not to be the frozen chosen. Why are we saved and why are we still here? 1 Peter 2.9. This is who you are and this is what God's doing in this age. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people, some might say a kingdom for his own possession. That is people prepared for a kingdom. That's who you are. That's pretty encouraging. That should boost your confidence, Christian. But why? Why were you chosen? What's your purpose now? Look at the next sentence. So that you may proclaim. So that you may proclaim. Let that sink in. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, out of the kingdom of darkness, into his marvelous light. God chose us, he called us, he converted us, not for the holy huddle. Not so that we would stick together and separate ourselves physically from the world. Not so that we would you know, make our own self a community up in the mountains and, and stay away from everybody. God saved us so that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Not so you'd run away from the world. Not so that we would circle the wagon, so to speak, and make sure that we keep a comfortable and safe Christian life for our families, but so that we would proclaim, so that we would go and make disciples, so that we would be ambassadors, pleading with people to be reconciled to God, so that we would be the salt and the light that Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount, so that we would be the people that welcome the sick and the poor, that we would welcome the afflicted, those in prison, the guilty and the ashamed, love that compels our souls to invite them to the cross, the place where they can find salvation for their souls, to come to Jesus for the rest that they need, to repent of their sins, to be born again by faith, and trust in Christ alone for salvation. We take them to the well that never runs dry. We give them the bread of life. 
the only bread that can sustain them through eternity. We are here not so that we can sin more, not so that we could stick together in a sense of separating ourselves from the world. We live in the world and we're to influence the world and evangelize the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. To do the mission. To make and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. Part of the mission is going. Are you going? Are you going out in your spheres of influence? Mothers, are you raising your children missionally? In the sense of, my job is, again, not just to grow this young lad so that he's 18 and self-dependent in society, but so that he would know Christ. I, I disciple them. That's my mission. Are you making disciples of your young ones? Are you mindful of the mission in your neighborhoods? In your working communities? That job is not just a means to an end, not just to make money, but God has put you in a sphere to influence people. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proclaim Him, that's why you're there. Are you on mission? Are you on mission? Are you like yeast spreading out and influencing the world for Christ? You know, the thing about yeast, it's interesting. If it's dead, it doesn't work. If it's dead, it doesn't work. Only yeast that is alive, a living organism, that's the only yeast that works. So, are you dead? Are you dead? Maybe you have a rational assent of Christianity. You, you're here because you agree morality-wise with Christian morals and and you can assent to the fact that, you know, Jesus was a real person and he may have died on the cross and resurrected from the dead. That's a leap, but I'll get there. And, and I'm just here for the community or I'm just here for the benefits or I'm just here because politically I agree with these people. You might be dead if that's the reason you're here. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you serve the King? Do you worship Him as God? And serve him as savior of, of your heart and your life. And, and your whole life is an offering of a living sacrifice to him of worship. Of service to your family and to the community. And, and part of that service is proclaiming the gospel. Are you, are you on mission? Are you living leaven? Man, this is a strong reminder for us that God's kingdom wins. That the mission will be successful. That God will build his church. We don't need to worry about the weeds. We need to evangelize them because we don't know if they might be the weed of God. We don't worry about their responses. We're just faithful to cast seed because we know we give God the growth. And our mission here is not to be comfortable, not to live safe, quote unquote, but to be proclaimers of the gospel, to be witnesses of Christ, faithful ambassadors, to be like yeast that spreads out and goes, and is active on mission. And so that's what I want us to see from this parable. It's just to rejoice in the success of the mission. Praise God. The mission doesn't fail. Rejoice at the success in the climactic vision of the finish of the kingdom, where all the nations will eventually bow the knee to submission to Christ. He will reign, and He will, will rule on this earth. We can praise God. We have a sure hope, a confident future. But last time I checked, he hasn't come back yet. 
He's still seated at the right hand of the Father. And until then, we've got a job to do, don't we? We've got a mission to make and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. How are you engaged in that mission? Are you living on mission? Are you faithfully proclaiming the gospel? Again, moms, you know, don't overthink it or overcomplicate it. it could, your mission could very much involve your children, raising the generation to know God, to follow Christ. And then when your children leave the house, mission is accomplished in the church, making and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ here. And in your communities, men, think about your jobs, not just as a means of income, but as a mission field to reach some for Christ. Use every opportunity to cast seed. Be faithful in this mission. Use those little spheres in your life for gospel influence and glorify Christ with your life as a living sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, I think it's natural for us sometimes to know rationally at least or logically from your word that you're successful, that you're going to bring your kingdom to the earth. And sometimes, Lord, just naturally as Christians, we would prefer our comforts, our ease. Uh, We would prefer to not have difficult conversations and just live comfortably and and to just passively think, well, Lord, you're going to bring your kingdom to the earth and you're going to Your kingdom is going to be victorious and world-dominating, so I don't need to do anything. I could just sit here. God, but we know, we know that if we read your word, that we're called to be on mission. We're called to give our lives as a living sacrifice to you, God, every aspect of our lives, and that is our offering of worship. God, we're called to be ambassadors of Christ. We're called to live in these communities, not away from communities, but live in these communities as faithful salt and light to the community. God, I pray that Summit Bible Church would be a a city on a hill, a beacon in the communities of Fontana, Rialto, Rancho Cucamonga for Christ, that we would be a people that welcome any and all to hear the gospel, that they would be saved by the gospel, and that they would know Jesus Christ and grow in their walk and their love for him. Help us to live on mission, Lord. Help us to live on mission. In Jesus' name, amen.